I want you to hit me as hard as you can. Richard Mastin's science fiction horror novel, I Am Legend, was released in 1954 and changed the genre altogether. It's one of the greatest vampire zombie novels ever written and is a noted inspiration on both Stephen King and George Romero. Set in Los Angeles, the book tells the story of Robert Neville, who is the seemingly lone survivor of a plague that turned most of humanity into blood-sucking vampire monsters. Neville survives nightly attacks by hordes thirsty for his blood, while trying to overcome the soul-crushing loneliness of being the last human alive. It's a novel that manages the dual feat of being a great horror story and a painfully sad character study. It's got a gut punch of a twist, too. The book was a massive success upon its release and spawned several adaptions. The Last Man on Earth in 1964, The Omega Man in 1971, and I Am Legend in 2007. However, the world was never able to see the adaptation Ridley Scott had in mind. I Am Legend is an inherently cinematic concept, but it hasn't had a smooth ride on the big screen. It was first adapted in 1964 into The Last Man on Earth, starring Vincent Price. Madsen himself wrote the screenplay, but chose to be credited with a pseudonym when he was dissatisfied with the result. A novelist definitely isn't used to the collaboration of movie making. The Last Man on Earth is probably closest to original story, but suffers from a low budget and Price being miscast in the title role. This version also inspired Night of the Living Dead, in particular the scenes of mindless vampires attacking Price's house. The book was adapted a second time in 1971 by Warner Brothers. It was turned into a campy Charleston Heston vehicle titled The Omega Man. It drastically altered the plot, turning Neville into a masculine scientist with a quick trigger finger. It's a pretty bad adaptation of the book, turning the vampires into cloaked albinos who hide from light and destroy any remains of the human world. It's a somewhat enjoyable film to watch, however, thanks to Heston's charisma and the eerie scenes of a deserted LA. Then back in the late 1990s, science fiction movies were having a resurgence. Stargate, Mars Attacks, Contact, 12 Monkeys, and Alien 3 all came out with strong box office results, and thus the market was ready for I Am Legend Star Vehicle. Warner Brothers still owned the rights to Madsen's novel, having purchased them for the Omega Man. They reached out to screenwriter Mark Protosevich, writer of The Cell, to write a first draft. Protosevich would later go on to write Poseidon, the Poseidon Adventure remake, and Spike Lee's Old Boy. His I Am Legend script instantly became the talk of Hollywood and names like Tom Cruise and Michael Douglas began circling the project. His screenplay held some similarities to Madsen's novel, but he decided to set the story in San Francisco in the year 2000, as well as turbocharging the monster concept into a full-on blockbuster. The vampires now became hemocytes, intelligent creatures, who could speak with emaciated physiques and terrifying speed and agility. There's some good character work in there too, with Protosevich managing to capture Neville's overwhelming loneliness, which is crucial to the story. Then bring in Sir Ridley Scott, the famed director who burst onto the film scene with The Duelist in 1977, which was his fourth attempt to get a feature going. However, he was already a veteran director with hundreds of commercials under his belt. After The Duelist won Best Debut Film at Cannes Film Festival, Scott went on to direct Alien, Blade Runner, and Thelma and Louise. But had hit a slump with films like White Squall and G.I. Jane. So he was looking to make a solid comeback movie. 
Ridley Scott signed on in early 1997, agreeing to work with Protasevich's script, with Arnold Schwarzenegger set to star as the cunning lone survivor Robert Neville. By July 1997, production was slated for a September start date with locations in place. However, Scott was never truly impressed with Protasevich's original script and saw the potential to turn this high concept idea into a merging of a blockbuster and an art movie. So he turned to his friend and writer John Logan. At the time, Logan had worked as a playwright for some time, but hadn't written many screenplays. He would later go on to do Gladiator with Scott and then have a prolific career in movies with gems like The Last Samurai, The Aviator, Rango, Skyfall, and he also created Penny Dreadful. Logan had spent months writing several drafts of I Am Legend, moving the setting back to a dystopian Los Angeles destroyed by a virus. The Scott Logan version of I Am Legend was a bold artistic mashup of sci-fi action and psychological thriller, with little dialogue in the first hour and a kind of somber ending. The script is perfectly dark and thoughtful with the dialogue taut and tense. The shocks are there too though, and the deep existential intensity of the script would have allowed Scott to deliver his large scope and expansive awe-inspiring shots. The audience would have followed Arnie's Neville while he scavenged the ruins of Los Angeles and occasionally fended off attacks from vicious hemocytes, who in this draft returns to their feral state of the novel. They were non-speaking creatures, and Neville captures one of these creatures and forms a bond with her, hoping he can cure her and maybe save the rest of the infected. He does this by giving her his blood and feeding her, but the blood, because he's immune to the virus, ends up turning her more and more human. Scott wanted to reinvent Schwarzenegger's on-screen persona, showing the action icon struggling with grief, depression, and loneliness without any quips to lean on. He drank booze and blasted hemocytes into oblivion with tactile expertise. In this version, he was a resourceful architect who had survived this great virus and was now living in a beautiful modern mansion in the Hollywood Hills. And he suited up in Kevlar suit daily to enter the world. Tailoring the character to Arnie, Logan and Scott wrote in his love for cigars and his use of a pumped up Hummer. Since it's Ridley Scott we're talking about, he obviously wasn't going to let the chance to dream of a post-apocalyptic world pass him by. He employed famed storyboard artist Sylvain Despress to sketch out his vision, leading to some stunning artwork that's closest we'll probably ever get to seeing Scott's version. According to the UK magazine SFX, after working on the abandoned Tim Burton Superman Lives film, Sylvain ran into the famed alien director Ridley Scott on the Warner Brothers backlog. He says, I ran into Ridley Scott and so we went over to say hello and at one point in the conversation he said grinning, so how are you enjoying Superman? And I said, well, and he explained that he was there with I Am Legend, this big Schwarzenegger picture that I had only just read about. I was giving an open invitation to drop by and look around, which I did that very afternoon. The spreads rang up the office, sent over some samples and got hired. He insists all the credit of the work he did belongs to Ridley Scott, saying, they're not mine, they're Ridley's. He explains it very precisely because he knows what he's doing. He doesn't just tell me what to do, he also sketches it. He does little diagrams telling me where the camera is and what we will be looking at. Ridley is a better storyboard artist than almost any working storyboard artist in the business. If you look at his drawings, they're stunning. You can see the juice of the composition. You can He just knows what he wants and he's good at it. Usually he's very random. He'll kind of dream up scenes. His favorite thing to say is, okay, I thought this scene would open like this. I don't know why but instinctively, I see it this way. And that's how it starts. He shed some light on the development of Hemocytes saying, Arthur Max, 
the production designer of Legend, had done tons of research on starvation and burn victims. There were some very gory photographs that we looked at depicting different deficiencies and illnesses. We also went through many documentaries because Ridley told us that he wanted an emaciated look and was thinking about using CGI to give actors a skeletal appearance. I found this extraordinary medical book on skinless bodies, atrocious stuff, and everyone thought it was great to use. We also looked at the third Reich photographer, Lenny Reifenstahl's Nubian portraits because Ridley was really into their tribal paints. He felt that the hemocytes had some level of sophistication. Although you didn't know exactly how sophisticated they were, they were definitely using symbols and body paints while being clothed in rags. Despretz believes the film would have been brilliant. If Ridley could have done what he wanted, it would have been a terrific film. It would have been a stunning mood piece, unlike anything anyone would have expected or had been released. It was way beyond an action movie. It had action in it, but the film didn't depend on it. The character of Neville was so original. Ridley had very interesting ideas on how to use him in his nature as an architect. By the time he'd become the last man on earth, he'd actually turned his home into an incredible museum of beautiful paintings and gorgeous structures. He had gone to the Getty Museum and had just taken Monet paintings and put them on his house. Scott then went on to collaborate with the effects company Studio ADI on the look of the creatures. Alec Gillis and Tom Woodruff were hired to design makeup characters. They were responsible for the Leviathan and Tremors creatures. The plan was for the hemocytes to be incredibly skinny but also statuesque with the creatures having taken to wrapping themselves in plastic and trash to stay protected from the sun. They also would have indulged in tribal body painting and symbols to give them a hint of intelligence. Ridley was influenced by wax figures from the 17th century, Gillis pointed out. We did a test on a single female subject to show her in a few stages of emaciation. Shortly after we got the test uh, at ADI, Warner Brothers decided not to make the movie. The budget was coming in 10 million higher than desired. It all got shelved until Francis Lawrence and Will Smith version years later. We did get an interview on that version, but there was next to no interest in makeup effects. The script storyboards and makeup tests were incredible. However, the idealistic cinematic hopes of Scott and Logan worked better in their minds than those of the producers. The bold, almost silent opening hour was just one of the series of problems Warner Brothers had with the project. The somber ending, the overly negative story, and a lack of commercial and merchandising appeal led Warner to become much more forceful about how their money was being spent. After all, the market for action figures based around a depressed alcoholic Arnold Schwarzenegger is a niche one. From the studio's POV, John Logan had yet to have any of his work produced, and Scott had come off the back of three box office and critical disappointments. 1492, Conquest of Paradise, White Squall, and G.I. Jane. These factors would never create an atmosphere of confidence. It was not until Gladiator that Sir Ridley reasserted his directorial prowess and prestige. Discouraged by the psychological emphasis over action beats, Proto-Savage was brought back against Scott's wishes. Now it's December 1997. The problems were increasing. The budget had now hit $108 million with no footage to show, causing shareholders to pressure Warner Brothers to intervene and stop the cost spiraling any farther out of control. When considering Warner Brothers' box office failures with the sci-fi flicks such as Sphere and The Postman, both led by A-listers such as Samuel L. Jackson, Dustin Hoffman, and Kevin Costner, it's clear that the studio is not willing to suffer another bomb and the economic repercussions. They were looking for surefire hits and didn't feel a downbeat 
R-rated Blockbuster was a good investment. They also felt it cost too much, with Arnold's hefty salary swallowing a really big portion of the budget. To farther reinforce this fear, Schwarzenegger had seen his last film, Warner Brothers' very own Batman and Robin, falter spectacularly, with Arnie even earning a Razzie nomination as Worst Supporting Actor. Despite the cracks, Scott desperately tried to save the project rewriting the script to reduce the budget by $20 million. However, in March 1998, the studio finally pulled the plug. When asked by Empire in the media tour for Prometheus about the failed project, Scott said, I Am Legend was taken right to the wire and it was only brought down because the budget was too high at the time. It was a mere $106 million, which to me now seems a medium-sized film, but it was shot down because I said I couldn't reduce it any farther. So I crossed the street and I made Gladiator instead. It was a good move. The director has never come across as a sentimental fellow, and it seems he definitely lost no sleep over it. And since Gladiator is the movie credited with reigniting his career, he might even view the whole thing as lucky. For fans of the book or thoughtful sci-fi in general, however, it ranks as a tragic missed opportunity. It had a great script, a unique combo of star and actor, and would have been a rare big budget studio movie that relied on mood and emotion instead of action. Although, the action was pretty badass too. Now fast forward to 2007, Francis Lawrence came on board. Much like Ridley Scott, by the time Francis made his first feature film, Constantine, a criminally underrated film I may add, he was a veteran director but in music videos instead of commercials. When Francis came on board the film, Mark Protosevich's script was rewritten by scribe Akiva Goldsman, writer of Batman Forever, Batman and Robin oddly enough, Beautiful Mind, iRobot, Cinderella Man, and The Da Vinci Code. But in his version, many of John Logan's touches remain. The setting was changed to New York City, but the vicious hemocytes remained in the same feral state. This version, starring Will Smith, definitely had its merits. Its vision of an abandoned New York is chilling, plus Smith gave one of his strongest dramatic turns to date. The film itself is good, but suffers from awful CGI and a poor third act that collapses into the most formulaic gung-ho ending, which is a shame because the end of the novel is one of the best parts about it. In the novel, Neville is captured by the vampires after falling for one of the vampire girls. After he helps her, she sets him up for capturing, and as he waits for his public execution, the girl offers him a cyanide pill to commit suicide before his execution. He looks for the bars at the frightened vampires on the other side and realizes he is their legend, the last of the humans who hunted the vampires. He is what vampires were to us legend from a forgotten world. It was a truly stunning twist ending that left a big impression. And while fans of the original 1954 novella from Richard Masson might have preferred Ridley Scott's vision of the film, the 2007 film ended up being a huge success, going on to earn more than $600 million worldwide. With no plans for a follow-up film on the horizon, we won't be too surprised if we get an all-new incarnation of the story heading into development in the near future, which could potentially lean more into practical special effects once again. Warner Brothers flirted with the idea of making a sequel or prequel for years, featuring cool, interesting concepts like Will Smith, clones, and vampire elephants. They've also flirted with a reboot, but even if it ever gets off the ground, it seems unlikely Scott would return, which is truly a shame because he had a vision for something absolutely special, and Lord knows the book deserves a classic movie based on it. In hindsight, it seems stupid to turn down such a gorgeous concept as Schwarzenegger and Scott working together and creating something that could have been iconic. Yet to wholly critique the execs who played the numbers game is ridiculous when the context is considered. All the same, the vision of a dystopian Los Angeles with feral mutants as planned by Scott is truly in line with what Madsen originally had written. 
one can only wonder what could have been. It seems producers continue to miss out on masterpieces in the pursuit of treasure, even messing up the Will Smith I Am Legend by forcing the director to put forward the bad ending we got, even though the alternative ending and outcome was a lot closer to the book and a little less cheesy. In it, instead of blowing himself and the hemocytes up with a grenade, Neville discovers that the hemocytes actually came for the female he captured earlier in the movie. He relieves her of the cure and returns her to the hemocytes. This was way closer to the idea of the story that the hemocytes didn't want to be cured and were a new species afraid of the legend of the boogeyman who hunted them. In Scott and Logan's version, the hemocyte he captures and starts giving his blood begins to become more human and they begin to build a bond. When the hemocyte leader and his gang comes for the girl, they discover she's more human and kill her and burn Neville's house down. This leads to a final showdown in a desert town that is absolutely epic. Neville kills the leader, hemocyte, in an abandoned bowling alley. Afterwards, he finds a living boy at a nearby Air Force base, and the film ends with hope for Neville, which would have been way better than all the versions. Anyway, here's to hoping that producers start trusting directors more once productions get going again after our own viral pandemic.